Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Stephen Unu, the K-12 editor here at EdSurge. For students these days, life is lived increasingly online. We see it in their consumption habits, from how they watch and stream, to the new media stars they look up to, and even what they think is funny. But we also see it in how they learn. Once upon a time, students learned at school and maybe while doing homework or trips to the museum. But now, learning, like the internet, is everywhere thanks to the ubiquity of smartphones and Chromebooks. For the students today, for our young people today, learning is a 24-7 enterprise. It just happens to happen um, from 8 o'clock to 2.30 in the classroom, but that doesn't mean learning stops when they leave school. That's Julie Evans, the CEO of the education nonprofit Project Tomorrow, and our guest this week. Evans spends a lot of time thinking about how young people learn and interact with others. Or maybe more accurately, she spends a lot of time quantifying it. For more than 15 years, her group has run a survey effort called Speak Up, which polls students and adults about learning trends. It's not strictly scientific, but it is massive, collecting and analyzing hundreds of thousands of responses each year. Last month, I attended the FETC conference in Miami, which draws thousands of K-12 ed tech folks, including a lot of teachers and tech coaches. And I got a chance to speak with Evans about the social and collaborative learning that students in her survey say they want. And we also talked about screen time, self-directed learning, and why kids today just don't trust dot-com domains. We recorded this at the conference, so you'll hear some of the hubbub of attendees milling about around us. To start, I asked Evans to give the elevator pitch for what the Speak Up survey is and some of the biggest takeaways from the latest report. Uh, so the Speak Up survey is an annual research project that's facilitated by Project Tomorrow, where every year we create a series of online surveys and make them available to any K-12 school or district that wants to use them to collect feedback from their own stakeholders. So we develop surveys for K-12 students, teachers, parents, administrators, community members, everyone that works within a school district or is impacting the lives of students. So we ask questions that have to do with digital learning, but we also ask questions about school climate. We ask questions about future-ready skills. We ask questions about the concerns that parents have about their students' future. That leads me to some of what I thought were some of the big findings from this year. Uh, So one of the things I thought was really interesting is that when we ask parents, what are your chief concerns about your students' future, your children's future? The parents told us that their number one concern was that their child would have to take on too much student debt to be able to be successful in the future. And then the number two was, my child's not learning the right skills in school to be successful. So we thought that was really interesting, those tandem concerns that parents have. The other side of it is that when we ask students about the experience that they're having in school, they want to be successful in school. I was just looking at these numbers last night. 81% of sixth graders said they want to be successful in school, yet they find too often that their classes aren't interesting and the students themselves say they're not learning the right skills. One of the questions that we did a whole depth of study on was we asked students about what they were doing with YouTube. You know, are they just going on and watching movies or are they running businesses? In fact, 7% of middle school and high school kids told us they're running a business on YouTube. Uh, But the more important thing was that the students' experience on YouTube is now 
driving them to think about the skills that they're learning, whether they are creating videos, posting comments, running a business. And in fact, the same percentage of students that tell us that they're learning skills in school to be successful now say they're actually learning skills through their YouTube experience to be successful in future. That's equating this uh, self-directed, what some people might even think is frivolous experience with their learning experience in school. Pretty interesting. The survey makes it clear that today's students have a clear vision about how they want to learn. And uh, one of the examples you're using here at the conference is you're using sixth graders as a representative group in a session. Uh, why sixth graders and uh, what's the story there? Uh, so sixth graders from our data analysis really are the epitome of what is the student learner today that's leveraging out the experiences that they have with technology. You know, when we talk about the student vision for learning, it's predicated on three components. The students want to be involved in socially based learning experiences. They want those learning experiences to not necessarily be tethered, but rather be untethered so they can take advantage of all the resources that are available. And they also want them to be contextually rich, so really have a tie in with the world around them. Uh, when we look at the experiences that students have had, and we can disaggregate our data based on whether they're a 12th grader, a 2nd grader, a 4th grader, or a 6th grader, the 6th grade cohort is the one that is really the leading edge of this new vision around learning that puts such a premium for the students on self-directed learning and learning that is is different than what they're getting in school. So we're starting to see sort of the leading edge of this. So if people are just high school educators, they may not see it yet, but believe me, it's coming. Uh, one of the other takeaways was that students want socially based learning experiences. Uh, can you talk about what that means and uh, whether or not we should kind of be rethinking the old respond to this discussion prompt on your canvas? Yeah, absolutely. So the socially based learning that the students are talking about is interesting because lots of educators would say, well, school is socially based. We're all sitting together in a classroom. There are people next to you. Um, we've always done projects in school. So what's the, what's the gig? Um, what the students are talking about with socially based learning is the opportunity to co-learn with each other, collaborate with each other, but not have that limited to just who's sitting next to them but rather be thinking about, can we be co-learning and collaborating on learning experiences with my teacher, with teachers in other grades or other classes that I'm not having, collaborating with students that aren't at my school, collaborating with students on real-world problems that are all around the world. So it's about an expanded view of socially-based learning. The students tell us the very best way for them to learn, in many cases, is that co-learning experience where they have the opportunity to share what they know with other students and also be able to get feedback on their work from other students. I love the the student to student piece, but the part that I and, and that can be easily implemented in many classrooms. The part that's a little bit more difficult for our educators is to think about them co-learning with their students so that they are no longer the expert in the class, but they may actually be going through the learning experience together and sharing that experience that opportunity.
Yeah, so many of us uh, adults particularly kind of make this distinction between, you know, learning that happens traditionally and learning that happens digitally. Do students today have kind of the same distinction or is learning kind of all muddled together online and offline experiences kind of muddled together? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, you're absolutely right. So many of us continue to segment these things. You know, I was I was doing a session yesterday. We were talking about digital content. And I said, you know, some of the lines between core curriculum and supplemental curriculum now are blurred. And it's the same thing for the students. You know, for the students today, for our young people today, learning is a 24-7 enterprise. It just happens to happen um, from 8 o'clock to 2.30 in the classroom, but that doesn't mean learning stops when they leave school. Because of the exposure and the access that students have to so many different digital products, including being able to access the internet anywhere, anytime, that learning experience is happening all the time. So the students don't see the same distinctions. They don't see the distinctions between school learning versus at-home learning. They don't see it that it's it all has to be digital. The kids have never said it all needs to be digital, despite what some people would say. Um, and actually, they have a very healthy balance of using print materials, using first-person materials, having opportunities to engage with people, as well as digital tools. It's sometimes, um, sorry, Stephen, the media that say, um, "Oh, these kids—they just want to put their nose in a in a in their phone or in a computer and don't want." have interactions with people. Actually, that is more of a symptom that we saw in millennials, to be honest with you, <laughs> than we see in this current generation. You know, we've been doing this polling since 2003, so we've got quite an arc in terms of seeing the changes that have happened. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Going back to the co-learning with teachers for a second, what is that? What could that potentially look like if you're if you're listening to this? And and you know, it's it's hard for me to kind of visualize what a teacher kind of is. is this a teacher learning about something with their students for the first time that they themselves don't know? Yeah, it's a little hard to wrap your head around. So what the students will say is that. They are not, because they are so used to looking up information themselves online, mm -hmm. they are not looking at it that the teacher has to be the expert in everything. So where we used to think about um, the teachers being the repository of all knowledge, just waiting to fill the student with what they know, that's no longer the case. And so much is happening. I mean, just think about science in terms of how science changes so frequently. The idea that uh, a sixth grade science teacher would know everything that's happening in the world is probably unrealistic. I was in a classroom a couple of years ago in Texas doing a focus group with sixth graders, in fact, science classroom. And the um, students were telling me that one of the things that they do almost every day after school, or at least that's what they told me, is that they go home to look up information about what they learned in school. Good self-directed learning. They also said that they do that to check and make sure that what their teacher told them was accurate. This was a little bit of an awkward moment, a little bit of an embarrassing moment, because the teacher was standing right over my shoulder. <laughs> and so um, she came right up to me and she said, I've taught them to do that. I want them to be um, good discriminators of information. And she said, quite often there are times we're discussing topics that I don't know everything about. And we have to go out and look up that information and find experts, and then we learn it together. 
So in some cases, it can be um, not necessarily intentional. It can be more haphazard or random. But the important part is for teachers to be open to that and not realize or not still hang on to that belief that they need to be the experts of everything. Did you get any sense of what the sources students trust most on the Internet are? Um, I'm chuckling a little bit, Stephen, because I, I get that question a lot, and I ask that question a lot. You know, in addition to doing the Speak Up research, where we're polling anywhere between 400,000 and 500,000 education stakeholders every year, I do about 30 focus groups out in schools and districts. And so quite often I will ask students, as well as teachers, so how do you determine the authenticity of the sources? How do you know that something is accurate um, and you can rely upon it? Um, overwhelmingly, what students tell me is the following, and I'm not necessarily saying this is the best way to authenticate resources. The librarians that are probably listening are probably going to have a heart attack on this, but this is the way students are being taught. What students will tell me is that they never use a .com. They don't trust .coms. That .orgs are okay, so if you're looking at the domain URL, a .org is okay. A .edu is the best. And you shouldn't really even trust the .govs. So it's really interesting. The first time I had students explain this to me, I sort of chuckled to myself because I thought, well, that's, that's kind of a narrow perspective on things. It must just be this teacher has taught the students to do this. I hear it all across the country. I hear it from teachers. I hear it from pre-service teachers and teacher programs. We need to do a better job of understanding not only for ourselves how to authenticate resources, but how do we teach students to understand what are the best ways to identify accurate sources. Yeah, so they, they've come up with their own shorthand maybe for figuring this out. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I can understand where it makes it easy, but um, as we know, there, the domain names do not necessarily correlate all the time to accuracy or authenticity. <laughs> um, and it's what the students also will say to us. One of their frustration is with school filters that will like automatically filter out .coms. And maybe there are some .coms that they want to be able to access because of the value of those resources. But because of um, overly simplistic approaches to filtering or to understanding where accuracy is coming from, from a source standpoint, that's what ends up happening. Another interesting data point was that uh, parents say they want their kids using digital tools, but two-thirds of them also say they worry about screen time. So what's the message here? Are schools really being charged with threading a really fine needle? That's a great question, Stephen, because there's so much conversation happening about this too much screen time issue. Um, so here's here's the story on it. And we've actually been polling on parents' concerns about screen time for 10 years. So we have a lot of data. Definitely parents are more concerned about screen time today than they've ever been before. But the story is it's really about general screen time. It's not about screen time for learning. So when we poll parents and we say, so what's your concern about your child's general use of screens and devices and the amount of time they're spending online? Two-thirds of parents say, yeah, I'm concerned about that. When we ask them about screen time, at school or having to do with learning, only a third of parents say they're concerned about that. Now, a third is still a high number, but it's not the two-thirds. 
And so as schools and districts are trying to see how do they um, thread that needle, between the value associated with digital learning and the screen time issue, my recommendation is that they have to change their messaging about the value of digital learning. It doesn't matter what we poll um, on when we ask educators what's the value of digital tools, the automatic knee-jerk number one response is it increases engagement of students and learning. And I get head nods all the time at conferences about that. Everyone believes that's the case. The problem is too often in our messaging to parents, we've put a period at the end of that sentence after engagement. The parents in my focus group tell me, their students, their children have tons of engagement with devices. And their message to their school districts is, if the only value is engagement, I don't need it at school. So I think the impetus is on our school and district leaders to think differently about how they are messaging the value proposition. So thinking about what is the use of these digital tools doing to help students for the future? How is it giving them access to different types of content? How is it providing them with a personalized learning approach? How is it changing the outcomes or the skills that students are developing? And start messaging that out to parents rather than just calling it about engagement. When we ask students about the outcomes associated with digital learning, they actually don't talk about engagement. They talk about skill development. They talk about a personalized learning approach. They talk about better grades, more likely to complete homework. Um, in going back to our sixth graders as that epitome, increased engagement or motivation in learning doesn't even make their top 10 in terms of the outcomes. So the students have a different perspective on this that we should be listening to. Great. Thanks so much, Julie. Really appreciate it. It was great being here with you, Stephen. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you interviews and stories about how education is changing, both in K-12 and higher ed. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you're listening from. This episode was edited by me, Stephen Unu, and produced by my colleague, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week. Take care.